Chapter Twenty Eight of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Them Christian Commission Folks. The new houses, plans for which had been placed in Mr. Tucker's hands, were progressing finely, Paul Adams having proved so faithful a worker that his employer daily congratulated himself on having brought the boy along. A very industrious man was Mr. Tucker. Few of the meetings beguiled either him or his workmen from saw and plane. But there came a day in which he announced at day dawn that he shouldn't do a stroke of work, neither need his hands. It is a regular Fourth of July day, he said triumphantly. Two or three of em mixed in together. Them Christian Commission folks were the greatest fellows we had in the war. I used to read about them, and our folks used to send them things, and I thought then I'd go to hear them talk whenever I got a chance. By this you will understand that the Christian Commission folks were having a reunion at Chautauqua. To that meeting came Paul Adams, hovering on the outskirts. It was the first entire day that had been taken from the two houses for meetings, and Paul was not yet decided whether to devote it to the meeting or to the study of Latin. You will remember that he had pitched into that, to use an expressive phrase borrowed from his friend Joe, and that he had brought to it all the energy and more skill than he gave to Merivale. Already Professor Holmes had singled him out as one determined to learn, and was giving him just the hints that he needed to make his progress very rapid. So Paul was jealous of a whole day, and had almost resolved on spending it over his book without going to the auditorium at all. The extraordinary crowds that were pushing in that direction, however, had beguiled him into going down to look on for a minute. Then he fully meant to return to his Latin. He arrived at the big tree, against which he leaned just as a voice was saying, "'Mr. Chairman, it is fitting that this reunion should take place at Chautauqua, which is another Christian commission.' The words conveyed no special meaning to Paul Adams, who had no enthusiasm for anything Christian, but the voice he recognized as Dr. Vincent's, and the spell of Chautauqua was sufficiently upon him to make him wait to hear whatever that voice had to say. So he squared off against the tree for better support and listened, and by the time the closing sentence had been reached, I take great pleasure in behalf of the officers of the Chautauqua Sunday School Assembly in bidding you welcome this morning to our lakeside, to our groves, to our temples, to our homes, to the ringing of our bells, the singing of our songs, the breathing of our prayers, the clasping of hands, the union of hearts, and the furtherance in every possible way of an intelligent Christian unity among all those who live under our flag, and who believe in our Lord Jesus Christ, no hands rang together more heartily, or held to the cheering longer, than did those of Paul Adams, albeit he had never, in the sense that the speaker meant, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He intended fully to return to his Latin as soon as Dr. Vincent sat down, but of course he waited for the Chautauqua salute with which General Fisk was greeted. He even fumbled in each pocket for a handkerchief, and drew it forth, somewhat soiled indeed, but loyal to the occasion. How could he help adding another to the white wings? He had no special knowledge of the name, General Fisk, and I think would have turned away directly the salute was over, had not a young man at his left questioned another after this fashion. 
who is general fisk anyhow whereupon young bennett who stood with jack fenton just back of paul commented thus shouldn't you suppose that any person who laid claim to the very slightest amount of general information would know general fisk by name the half-sneer which accompanied the words made paul adams resolve to stay and see if he could discover who general fisk was not that he laid claim to a large amount of general information but he had resolved some time before this that his stock should be increased whenever opportunity afforded much to his disappointment the general whom everybody seemed so eager to honour was not the next speaker but young bennett again held him by saying ah now we shall hear something grand george h stuart always does a fine thing then it is my business to hear him do it said paul squaring himself against the tree a fellow who always does a fine thing ought to be worth hearing but paul adams although he was passably well posted in merivale was studying latin with all his might and had managed in the past few months to acquire considerable general information had yet neglected his early opportunities such as they were too entirely to be deeply interested in a speech that did not touch in some way the little knowledge that he possessed therefore after standing first on one foot and then the other for a time he was again on the point of leaving when mr stuart suddenly held aloft a sheet of paper and said none of you have money enough to buy this letter my said paul and he looked about him on the vast audience unmistakably there were those many of them who had plenty of money what did the man mean it is an autograph letter continued the speaker paul actually did not know what an autograph letter was let me tell you the immense difference between him and many another ignorant fellow of his age and give you at the same time an incontrovertible proof that his mind had awakened and would not be likely to sleep again he instantly determined to know as soon as he came in contact with a dictionary exactly what the word meant and to that end he wrote it on a bit of chip with which he had been playing meantime he was listening when i am dead and gone said the speaker i hope it will sell for a hundred thousand dollars to some man to send the gospel of christ to the heathen it was written in the handwriting of a man you have heard of the letter reads as follows executive mansion washington december twelfth eighteen sixty one reverend george h stuart chairman of christian commission my dear sir your letter of the eleventh instant and accompanying plan both of which are returned as a convenient mode of connecting this with them have just been received your christian and benevolent undertaking for the benefit of the soldiers is too obviously proper and praiseworthy to admit of any difference of opinion i sincerely hope that the plan may be as successful in execution as it is just and general in conception your obedient servant a lincoln now paul adams was by no means so lamentably ignorant as not to have heard of that name you perhaps will remember that his weak and feeble little mother was a hero worshipper and one of her heroes had been abraham lincoln there was scarcely a detail of his homely early life his wonderful career as a patriot and a president and his tragic death that she had not told over and over again to her boy so no hands were more ready than the boy's to cheer 
and he needed nothing more to hold him to that tree. George H. Stewart had won his heart. Moreover, from that point in the address, as if some subtle instinct had told the speaker what a power his words were to be to one soul, he changed his manner of address, and confined himself closely to incidents, thrilling, earnest, eager, such as the boy Paul could understand. He held up a five-pound note which he said the Bank of England tried to buy, but they had not money enough. It was the gift of a poor woman who sent it to Mr. Lincoln, with the request that he would use it in buying Bibles for the soldiers. He sent it to Mr. Stewart, who told its story here and there, until it had earned for the soldiers over a hundred thousand dollars. Paul's eyes grew large and thoughtful, but there was something besides the immense sum of money that astonished him. It was the fact that so much importance was evidently attached to the giving of Bibles to the soldiers. Why should there be considered a connection between soldiers and Bibles? His thoughts went off on a sidetrack, reviewing this question. The speaker came into line again. "'Here is a testament,' he said, holding up a little bruised and battered volume, "'that has been in Exeter Hall, and Rome, Florence, Italy, and Paris, and has been examined by many, up to the Pope's very door. He did not get hold of it. I was afraid to trust him with it.' It was before the days when Italy was free, and I was told it was dangerous to carry a Bible in there. But I said I would risk that book, for I know its history. Do you see that little hole there? The bullet went in at the last chapter of Revelation, and it passed through every chapter of the New Testament, until it reached the first chapter of Matthew, and all there was between the soldier and eternity was that lid. That was in the breast pocket of a Confederate soldier in Tennessee, and it was sent to me as one of the treasures of the war. "'Bible again!' muttered Paul. It began to be apparent that there was much in common between soldiers and the Bible. The magnitude of the figures presented next amazed him. "'The first year,' said Mr. Stewart, "'our whole value in stores and cash came to three hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars, and we thought the millennium had come.' The last four months gave us two million two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Immediately the newly awakened brains of the boy went to calculating, not only how much that would be in a year, but what he would do if he had, say, half as much money as that. He came back to give attention to the speaker, just as he was explaining the method that the Christian Commission employed for recognizing soldiers who fell in battle. A piece of parchment called an identifier was given to each, on which, for instance, was printed the following, I am John Smith, Company I, Regiment 34, 3rd Brigade, 2nd Division, 4th Army Corps. And as John Smith is putting that around his neck, he reads on it these words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Paul knew that verse. It was one of his mother's. It had been one of his in childhood. Again and again had his mother called for it in the twilight of a Sabbath evening, and talked to him about the wonderful gift of a son, until he well remembered that, because it made him feel so dreadful to see her cry. He gruffly told her one evening that he was sick and tired of that verse, and never meant to recite it again. 
in his secret heart he had carried about the conviction that his mother stood alone in the fuss that she made about those things and that it was not the sort of talk for boys looking about on this immense audience and observing the tearful interest which it gave to these details it became evident to Paul that he had reached mistaken conclusions. He walked slowly away from the meeting, kicking pebbles before him in a meditative way, and presently ran against James Ward. That young man had seen little of his old associate since the special meetings commenced, so little that at times his conscience reproached him for making no effort to interest Paul in that which had become to him the most important of all topics well he said interrogatively changing his quick step to accommodate paul's slower mood been to the meeting what do you think it's all bible said paul still speaking in that meditative tone all what a little startled that phase of the meeting had not impressed young ward he had asked the question that he did merely to start conversation not intending to introduce abruptly the subject about which he felt that he ought sometime to talk with Paul. All Bible. I supposed it would be about the war, but every single speaker had something to say about the Bible, as though it was the most important book in the world. As of course it is, said James. Why is it? All people don't think so. There are plenty of men, scholars too, who don't believe in it at all. "'Don't you go to believing any such stuff as that,' declared James, with a wise shake of his head. "'How many of the crowd gathered here this summer belong to that class, do you suppose? It is plain to be seen that a great many of them are scholars, understanding the languages in which the book was written, and so able to judge for themselves. Now how many of these do you suppose you could find who don't believe every word there is in the Bible?' "'How do you know they believe in it?' Well, that isn't so easy to answer, unless I do it by asking the same question. How do you know it? They show it somehow in their looks and actions, and you are just as sure of it as though you heard them say so. But I don't believe you can explain how you know. This argument Paul turned over in his mind in grave silence, and was somewhat surprised, after careful consideration, to discover that it was correct. Supposing that is so, he said after a pause, what does it prove? Proves a good deal to me. Look here, Paul, here is a book that ever so many men and women have read, folks who know very little, but they have got enough out of it to make them over into new people. Then ever so many other men and women who know about all there is to learn out of books have read the same book and believed in it, and say that it has made them over too. Shows that it is a rather wonderful book now, doesn't it? "'Where did you get that?' questioned Paul. "'Got it from the normal class, partly, and part of it I made up out of the talk I heard there. It is a good argument, you see.' "'The normal class? What is that?' "'Haven't you been to any of the meetings? Why, it is a class where they study up these questions, and a good many others. There is a teacher who is well posted, and there is a good deal of general talk.' I find them about as interesting as anything that is going on. Belong to the CLSC? No, not exactly. That is, you can be a member of both societies, or either. No, it is a separate thing, but a great many who belong to the circle have joined the normal. 
when does it meet questioned paul resolved then and there to look in on this new circle and get light on certain new ideas if he could have you seen anything of joe the brother presently asked him why yes said paul a gleam of fun lighting up a pair of eyes that now that they had ceased to be sleepy were handsome i saw him at the door of his tent trying to contrive a plan for setting up another cot he has more tenants than he can accommodate and he talks of renting another tent joe has got into business and he'll make money as sure as you live End of chapter 28